And we should pray this morning for the Lord's strength and blessing and enabling. We should always do that, but especially when the pastor's a little under the weather. So uh, pray a special prayer for me this morning. Father, we thank you for your love for us and your faithfulness to us, Lord. And Lord, every time we open the scriptures, Lord, we receive a blessing. I just couldn't stay away today. I pray you'll speak to our hearts. Lord, you'll strengthen our faith. Lord, that you'll enhance the life of our church. And Lord, may we be known as a group of people who love each other, just as you love us. We ask that you bless us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, Worcester, Massachusetts police found a 73-year-old woman dead on her kitchen floor. As sad as that was, it's not that peculiar. I mean, tragedies happen. But what was unusual about the case is that the woman had been dead for four years. How could she have been dead for that long and no one know? Well, the woman's brother said that the family had never been close. The neighbors had the impression that she preferred to be left alone. In the end, it was a sorrowful tale of people living in close proximity, but not in community. Paul opens chapter 5 by telling us that this should never happen in the church. Recall his theme, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. I write, so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. As believers, we are God's house. And in chapter 5, Paul tells us one way the church should conduct itself is like a family. Verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers... Older women as mothers, younger as sisters, with all purity. You know, one of the great tragedies of our modern society is the transient nature of things these days. It's fostered the breakdown of the extended family. There was a day when folks had a support system of friends and relatives that they could lean on in tough times. During transition or in trouble, there was someone they could depend on. When the baby was born, grandma would help out. If financial problems struck, brothers and uncles would pitch in. People had a social safety net. Today, folks bounce from city to city, and they leave behind scattered relatives. People are home alone. On a daily practical basis, there's a lack of community. And this is why I believe Paul's words in these two verses are more important today than ever before. The church is supposed to act like an extended family. Older men, I suppose like myself, (laughs) should be respected, treated as fathers. They bring great wisdom to the table. And before you rebuke one, just remember it won't be long until you are one. Treat younger men as brothers. You're a little freer to joke around with a brother, are you not? Or get in his face if he needs it. He's a peer. Every man needs brothers in his life. Older ladies should be treated like moms. They should be loved on and appreciated dearly. The older ladies of the fellowship have your best interests at heart. And a young pastor, Timothy, should treat the younger women as sisters, that is, with all purity. In other words, don't let it get sexual. Don't let it become flirtatious. 
keep the relationships with the opposite sex familial. Young women aren't foxes or babes or chicks, but sisters. As my children got married, my wife knew that we would have to share them with the in-laws and the outlaws on the big holidays. Their attendance at the Adams gathering on Thanksgiving and Christmas would be hit or miss. But Kathy was smart, for she picked another day that belongs to us, New Year's Day. It's now an Adams tradition. The men all watch football and the women cook up delicious treats. And it is a great day for our family. We laugh and scream and cheer and play and eat and play. It's our day. It's the day that we gather. And this is what church on Sundays should be for us. Our day. We need to read our Bibles and pray and worship every day. But on Sundays we do it together. It's our day. It reinforces family. Sunday is our weekly family reunion. and It should be vital that we make it a priority. And speaking of God's family, there were certain members of that family that needed special care. For Paul writes in verse 3, Honor widows who are really widows. Once two women, they were sharing a semi-private hospital room. One was the wife of the local Episcopal priest. The other was a widow. Well, the two ladies, they had never met. The evening after their surgeries, the Episcopal priest stopped by to visit his wife. He came from the church, so he was still wearing his clerical collar. Well, they talked for a long time. They had a pleasant conversation. Finally, the priest, he wrapped his arms around his wife. He said goodbye with a long, passionate, emotional kiss and hug. Well, the other lady had just awakened from her anesthesia. Well, she looks over and she sees this. Later, she said to her roommate, Wow, I've been a member of my church for 50 years, and I've never gotten that kind of treatment. (laughs) And apparently, there were also a few women, that is, widows, in Timothy's church, who felt that they were being slighted. In Bible times, men made up 99% of the workforce. Few opportunities existed for a widow to gain employment and to support her family. And thus, when a family lost its breadwinner, the church had to step in. Today, the church is called on to step in charitably, not only for widows, but in many different situations. Modern society is terribly fractured, and it's easy for people to fall through the cracks. The poor and the widows and the orphans are now joined by the homeless and the uninsured and the single moms and the latchkey kids. And for a church to function normally and function as a family, it has to be strategic in meeting these needs. You know, just start throwing out community money and meeting needs left and right with no discretion and you'll bankrupt the church. You need a plan of attack. Churches need a benevolent strategy so that they honor widows who are really widows. So here's the question that all churches have to ask. How far do we go to supply financial help to needy people? See, it didn't take Timothy long to discover the two truths that all churches face, all churches face, when it comes to benevolence. First, we face unlimited needs. And second, we have limited resources. 
And when you try to meet unlimited needs with limited resources, discretion is a necessity. And in the next 14 verses, Paul is going to give to Timothy and all church leaders principles for allocating aid to widows. You might think this is irrelevant to you, but no. These instructions will contain principles that I think apply to every church's benevolence ministry. I glean from this seven principles I want to point out to you. Principle number one, never contribute to someone else's irresponsibility. Paul tells us in verse three, honor widows who are really widows. Now you'd think a real widow would be easy to identify. But in Paul's mind, a true widow is a candidate for benevolence, and it involved more than just losing a husband. A real widow had to meet certain additional qualifications. And in the same way, a truly poor person is more than a person who just doesn't have savings. Maybe he gambled away his pay. We don't want to reward that kind of behavior. Maybe he refuses to work. Likewise. To assess the legitimacy of the need, investigation is required. I'll never forget the fellow who came to a Calvary Chapel, to our Calvary Chapel one night with a sad, sad sob story. I mean, he pulled on everybody's heartstrings by the time he left. Some of the men got together and they decided to help him out financially, gave him quite a bit of money. Well, the next day I was listening to Clark Howard on the radio when Clark Howard started warning of a con man who had been fleecing churches in Atlanta, our guy fit Clark's description. And I realized we had been snookered. Another time we had a guy walk in the church and asked to use the phone. Said he had car problems. Well, nobody noticed he talked for over an hour. Well, when we got our bill, he had called India. Not Indiana, India. Evidently, his mechanic was in Bombay. Imagine the tow charge from Atlanta to India. It would have been as much as the telephone call. It astonishes me that there are people brazen enough to con a church. But it happens. Not everyone who says or seems to be in need is indeed a needy person. We should always want to help, but first, investigate. For Paul says, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. See, if a church steps in and helps a lady who has able family members in the loop, then the church's charity is undermining the family's responsibility. Let the kids or the grandkids care for mom. The church shouldn't enable somebody else's irresponsibility. Well, here's a second benevolence principle for the church. The church should take care of its own. Verse 5. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. Now a church's priority is to support people who are seeking the hand of God before they attempt to meet the needs of people who are just seeking a handout. Help a person who is dead to God and worships the idol of pleasure, and you may just be fueling their idolatry. 
I once saw a family, they were rummaging through a Goodwill drop-off, drop-off box. I felt so f- sorry for this family until I watched their loaded truck roll across the parking lot to right outside the liquor store. And then they went in and they helped themselves to some liquor. See, the church should avoid aiding a person who's dead to God when folks are trying to serve him need help. Look at verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially of those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This obviously applies to individuals. As a husband and a father, I am worse than a pagan, an unbeliever, if I don't work hard to provide the needs of my family. But this also applies to churches. We need to be concerned for the lost world around us, but especially of those who are of our own household. See, our first obligation as a church is to care for our own, for our own members, those who come regularly. Then we reach out beyond. Well, there's a third benevolence principle. Don't interfere with the character transformation God wants to accomplish in another person's life. Paul says in verse 9, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. And not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, that is, that she's been hospitable, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. Now, it could be that these true widows constituted a special order or a sisterhood within the first century church. Ladies with a lifetime history of good works and joyful service were supported by the church so that they could devote themselves full-time to practical ministry. But this ministry, this sisterhood of widows, was offered only to the mature believers. Widows over 60 years old, with a settled character, who'd shown a pattern of good works, Apparently, the younger widows still had much to learn from life's struggles. To support the younger ladies would have short-circuited the lessons that they needed to learn from having to lean on the Lord to meet their needs. And here's the application for us today. When you offer benevolence, make sure that you're not interfering with a life lesson or a life character development that God is trying to teach the person involved. There's a fourth principle here. Give God an opportunity to work through other means. Verse 11. But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. Now see, if a younger lady had entered this order of widows, this sisterhood, if she had taken a vow to serve the Lord full time, What happens later when she gets the urge to remarry? Well, suddenly she's forced to choose between serving Jesus and following the natural and healthy desire of being a wife. A younger gal should be free to remarry. When people come to the church for help, they're usually desperate. And without realizing it, we can create in them an unhealthy dependence on us. Rather than the church throwing money at every situation... Sometimes it's best for us to sit tight and be patient and wait on God to work in some other way. 
I remember a single lady in our church who told me the sad story of her loaning her friend $400. The friend never paid her back. And now she didn't have $400 to go home for the holidays. And I was so concerned for that lady. Matter of fact, I almost just reached in my pocket and pulled out $400. I didn't have $400 if I had. And given it to her. But the Lord checked my heart. We prayed together. And then we trusted God to provide. And I'll never forget the next week she called me. And she said she had received an unexpected $400 in the mail. That God had supernaturally provided her need. And seeing God work a miracle did far more for her faith than if the church had just cut her a check. We need to be careful. Well, the fifth principle for benevolence is to make sure your help is not a further temptation. Verse 13. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house. And not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies saying things which they ought not. You see, rather than fill her hours with meaningful service, a younger lady who lacks the spiritual maturity of the true widows just might end up with idle time on her hands. And by us taking care of her physical needs, rather than her trusting God and figuring it out, we could turn her into a soap opera addict or an irresponsible busybody. Our benevolence can play right into Satan's hands in her life. This is why our church rarely, rarely, rarely gives out cash. Some folks can't handle 500 bucks in their hand. It never gets to the landlord. It ends up fueling some addiction. That's why we might write a check to the power company or to a landlord or hand out grocery coupons. But we never give out cash. We don't want to add to a person's temptation. Which brings up a sixth principle. Look for long-term solutions to situations. Verse 14. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan. So we help a younger widow for the moment. Are we able to support her forever? No. See, the longer-term solution is for her to start a career or remarry a godly man. We might have somebody we we can recommend. Of course, we don't want to grab the first available body off the street, you know, who comes along. But she needs to be willing to trust God for the grace to start over. Unlike the older widows, the younger widows still have a lot of living to do. They need to be open to the possibility of a new beginning, even a second family. You know, there's an old saying that applies to church's charity. Catch a man of fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. At times, compassion requires a church's immediate assistance, but the best benevolence will always be long-term. And the last principle that he gives us is to encourage church members to take care of each other. Verse 16. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. And do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. Now remember, every church faces two immutable facts. 
We face unlimited needs and we possess limited resources. And thus, if the individual believers within the church can meet the needs themselves, their own needs, or meet each other's needs, then it frees up the church resources to minister in other ways. James chapter 1 verse 27 tells us, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. See, our highest calling is to care for the lowliest among us. Families don't let members slip through the cracks. Love is every Christian's business. So, one more time, let me review the seven principles that should govern our church benevolence. Never contribute to someone else's responsibility. The church should take care of its own. Don't interfere with the character transformation God wants to accomplish in another person's life. Give God an opportunity to work by other means. Make sure your help is not a further temptation Look for long-term solutions to situations and encourage church members to care for each other. Good wisdom, eh? Well, Paul has been encouraging Timothy to shepherd the flock of God. No lamb should be left behind. But now, verse 17 shifts gears. Because somebody needs to look out for the shepherd. Too many pastors shouldered the bulk of the ministry while their own needs get overlooked. So Paul tells the church, Timothy pastors, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. I love that verse. What an incredible verse. Paul is saying that if a church loves its pastor, if they've got a good pastor who feeds them God's word, then they should take out a calculator, plug in his salary, And then hit times two. (laughs) Just double his pay. (laughs) I wish that's what this verse meant, but it's not. (laughs) I actually like the true meaning of this verse better. Double honor, it speaks of payment in two forms. With a salary, for sure. But most importantly, with your respect. And there are days, trust me, when your respect means far more to me than the salary. Don't just assume pastors know that you appreciate them. Trust me, they tend to forget. Remind them often. Sadly, over the last 60 years, our society has developed a deep cynicism toward people in authority. And it's not just pastors, it's policemen and politicians and parents. And with each new scandal, suspicion only deepens. But if you have a pastor who labors in the word and doctrine, who works hard in the kitchen of preparation every week to turn out balanced, nutritious sermons that keep you spiritually healthy, then you need to support him. Verse 18. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Here Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, a verse I resemble. I kind of look a little bit like an ox, I suppose. But even an ox is allowed to eat from the grain that he threshes, 
Likewise, a pastor should be allowed to eat from the financial fruits of the ministry. Don't muzzle your pastor. Pay him well. Of course, a lot of churches take the approach, Lord, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor. I'm glad that's not our elders' approach. If they were, they would, that would make them at odds with Jesus. Notice the last line here in verse 18. It's in red letters. That means it's Jesus' own words. They come from Matthew 10, verse 10. And here it reads, The laborer is worthy of his wages. Well, Moses said pay the pastor. Jesus said pay the pastor. Now Paul is saying pay the pastor. Thus a church that pays its pastor is in good company. Verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Now, church leaders are often the subject of vicious gossip. I mean, a pastor is God's spokesperson, and this puts a target on a pastor. You know, people find it easier to blame the pastor, to even blame God, than to admit that their problems might be their own. And a pastor becomes a convenient scapegoat. Pastors realize this dynamic. But members of the church need to also understand this and refuse to believe every negativity they hear about their pastor. Certainly, you hope the folks that have been around for a while and know the pastor's track record will believe the best and question any accusation and give the guy the benefit of the doubt. Paul says any charge against a pastor and elder should be substantiated by two or three witnesses. Never entertain a single person's hearsay against a pastor. Realize what hurts a pastor more than the attacks of the enemy are the friendly fire from his own camp. Be careful. And yet when an accusation is confirmed and a pastor has strayed or sinned, then it shouldn't just be swept under the rug, that's for sure. No, a pastor or an elder isn't granted immunity. If a pastor is guilty, then he has to be called into account. He's not above correction or discipline himself. James 3 verse 1 cautions, Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Paul says it this way, verse 20, Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. And when a leader in the church gets discipline, it is a powerful example and deterrent to the whole church, no doubt. Paul challenges Timothy in verse 21. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. Now, wow, every pastor needs to recall who's watching. God and Jesus and even the angels got their eyes on us. That you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. A pastor should never be partial. He shouldn't play favorites. But be fair in his approach to people. And here's how to avoid bias. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily. You know, leaders should be proven before they're promoted. Nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. This is a strategic principle. All leaders are called on to roll up their shirt sleeves. And often church work can get messy. You end up dealing with people's problems. But don't get drugged down by the people you're trying to help. You know, some days I come home and I wonder, man, is there anybody out there still living a godly life? 
The answer, of course, is yes. But even if it were no, I need to be. Don't let another brother's failure become your excuse to sin. No longer drink only wine, he says to Timothy, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. This was before the days of Rolades and Pepsi. There were no Tums for Tim. And the old boy had a queasy stomach. Apparently he had a little digestive tract disorder. So Paul prescribes him a little Chardonnay for medicinal purposes. And notice the fact that Paul has to tell him to drink a glass of wine is evidence to me that it was off limits to the elders. He had to give him permission. Had to let him know his case was an exception. Now some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. What an important lesson here for spiritual leaders. Some sins are obvious. The burn is immediate and apparent. While other sins have time-released consequences. In other words, you don't feel the sting until months or years later. And the same is true with good works as well. You reap what you sow, but not always immediately. There is a wait. Now chapter 6 begins. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God in his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Historians say that there were as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, perhaps half of the total population. Many of the early Christians were actually slaves. And Paul tells them to respect their masters. Why? That the name of God in his doctrine not be blasphemed. It's provocative to me that Paul in the early church never denounced the institution of slavery in society. Oh, clearly, they didn't think a human being should be owned by another human being. In fact, Paul abolishes slavery in the church. He does so in Galatians 3, verse 28, when he states these words, There is neither slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ. In the church, slaves and slave owners were placed on equal footing. But in society at large, Paul never mounted a direct campaign to wipe out slavery. See, in his mind, slavery wasn't the real issue. See, if he had eliminated the system, there still would have been the attitude. There would still be wicked men trying to control the lives of other men. See, this goes on today in many nefarious forms. Paul was far more ambitious than wiping out slavery... He wanted to wipe out the pride and the selfishness and the greed in human beings that produced the desire to enslave. Paul preached Christ, knowing far well that in hearts where Christ was received, slavery would soon become a thing of the past. That love would overcome bondage. Well, he speaks to believing slaves in verse 2. And those who have believing masters, let them despise them because, I say, let, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because 
those who are benefited are believers and beloved. In other words, the slave of a believing master shouldn't get resentful. At least he's able to serve a fellow Christian. Besides this, the belief was that love conquers all. The love of an owner for his slave could cause that slave to serve him happily. And the love of the slave for his owner could prompt the owner to set him free. This was how Paul was going to take care of slavery, by changing hearts. He encourages Timothy in verse 2. Teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Timothy should teach the gospel's ability to change hearts, the power of love, the patience of faith. And if anyone teaches wranglings, he calls them, that contradict these doctrines, Timothy needs to withdraw his fellowship, especially from those who mix godliness with greed, which is still a very common problem today. The prosperity, prosperity gospel that we hear so much about is far too common in today's church. It's the idea that God wants us all to be rich. Thus, following Jesus is a way to cash in. Oh, God becomes an ATM. Just plug in your prayer or your positive confession or your seed faith. And out comes the money. Paul refutes this doctrine. He says in verse 6, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. See, money has nothing to do with true success. Real wealth consists of godliness with contentment. It knows Jesus is all we need. It's been said nothing fails so completely as success without God. As you climb the ladder of success, just be sure... It's not leaning against the wrong wall. And then he says in verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. You know, it's been said there are two tragedies in this life. First, not getting what you want. And then second, getting what you want. For once you bite the apple you realize it doesn't really satisfy. You know, Jesus told the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. And the same can be said for everything this world offers. You can get it. You can drink it, but you'll thirst again. He said, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. According to Paul, Food, clothing, and Jesus is more than enough for a wonderful life. It's true, the key to contentment is not getting more, but wanting less. Less from the world, more from Jesus. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. 
Once a New Orleans gambling riverboat started to sink. Passengers, they dove from the deck and they swam to the shore. But there was one man who dove into the water and never resurfaced. It was later discovered that before jumping in, the greedy guy ran into the casino and he filled up his pockets with gold coins. He drowned for the love of money. Verse 10 tells us, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Notice, money isn't the root of all evil. No. Money is a tool. It can be used for good and it can bring God glory. But it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. He says, but you, O man of God, flee these things. And the best way to flee temptation is to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Oh, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Verse 13. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Notice Paul mentions the Lord of the universe in the same sentence with a two-bit Roman governor who barely garners a footnote in secular history. And we often wonder why. Well, he wants us to know that he believes in the Jesus of history. That his Savior is not a legend. Not a figment of someone's imagination. The Lord of eternity occupied a spot on history's timeline. Jesus came to earth. He was real. He took a human body. He invaded the human struggle. He even even confessed in a human court before a man named Pilate. And then he urges us that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. Now remember Paul's pattern. He charges Timothy, and then he praises God. And here again is his praise. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Ironically, the King of kings was tried before a small fry governor. And yet today, Jesus sits on heaven's throne. His holiness radiates unapproachable light. Enter heaven in these mortal bodies and you would burn to a crisp. That's why we're going to inherit bodies like his that can behold his glory. And then we're told in verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Nor to trust in uncertain riches but in the living God. (laughs) And all riches are uncertain riches. Follow the stock market lately? I mean, material wealth can be here today and gone tomorrow. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Money can be eaten by inflation, devalued by legislation, stolen by taxation. 
Don't build a life on money. It is uncertain riches. Rather, trust in God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. You know, I love one author's definition of a legitimate pleasure. It's something that refreshes along the journey without distracting from the ultimate goal. Be thankful God fills our lives with helpful pleasures that we can enjoy and give Him thanks for. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. See, money isn't evil in and of itself. Here, Paul encourages those who have it to use it for the welfare of others and for the glory of God. He says in verse 19, storing up for yourself, for, sorry, I'm sorry, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Giving to God in this life does accrue rewards for you in the life to come. It's been said, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And then verse 20, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. And still today, the truth of God is under attack. That's why we need to guard it and preserve it and teach it to new generations. Avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. But professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Steer clear of this babbling speculation, he says. It'll sidetrack your faith. Now keep your doctrine both pure and biblical. And then Paul signs off. Grace be with you. Amen. And there we have Paul's first letter to Timothy.